invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. And as you're turning there, there's, a, there's an um, outline in your notes. I encourage you to take that and follow along and take notes and, um, by God's grace, study this passage uh, together and in, in a way that you'll remember it. Ruth chapter 3 is the text that we're on, and this will be the last week we're on chapter 3. Next week we're going to go into chapter 4 as we continue with, on with the theme of Redemption Shadow. Um, its elements, and uh, um, we're going to be looking today at 12 through 18. Um, this is God's word, brothers and sisters. Let me invite you to stand together with me out of reverence and respect for the reading of God's word. Please stand. Hear now the words of King Jesus. Then, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said uh, to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? And now is not Boaz our kinsman with uh, whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself therefore and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And it shall be that when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall uh, go and, and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. And she said to her, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And it happened in the, um, in the middle of, of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have not shown your last kindness to be better. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask for all my people um, in uh, the city know that you are a woman of excellence. And now it is true, I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will uh, redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning. And she arose before one could recognize uh, one another. And he said... Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done uh, for her. And she said, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said... Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it uh, today. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Lord, what a delight it is to fellowship with you now and your word in this table. Lord, it clearly is, we know, the climax of a worship service, to commune with you, to have you feed us, and, uh, Lord, that we might feast upon you spiritually and that we might be convicted and 
humbled and rebuked and built up and trained in righteousness under your glory and praise. Lord, we pray that you would do all of that and more than this day. Grant me grace and preach your word with fidelity. Grant that our faith will not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of you, our God. May you, O Lord, penetrate deep within our hearts the truths of your word, that we truly would be the people you've called us to be this day. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. On account of our study of the prophets over the last decade, you were introduced to a prophetic tool known as telescoping. Now, I think most of you know the definition of that, but let me review it for you real quickly. The word, the word telescoping is a, is a literary biblical tool um, which, is, which comes derived from the idea of the construction of a telescope. So with the telescope, you have two lenses, right? You, t- you pick up one lens and you look through it, everything's blurry. You pick up the second lens, you look through it, everything's bl- uh, blurry. But if you take the lenses and line them up and look through the near lens... At the image on the other lens, you'll see things that, that you would never see with the unaided eye. Okay? Now, that's technically not how a telescope works if you, look, if you study it. But that's where this idea comes from grammatically. So the call is for us in prophetic telescoping, like Isaiah ch- uh, chapter 7, to look through the event of this baby born um, whose birth would signal the demise of the enemy to look through that birth at the other birth, the big birth, that that prophecy is ultimately focusing on. That's telescoping. And when we do that, oh my, we see what Isaiah promised in that time is completely different, or, or not different, completely holy, holy, much more than what we ever would have thought of just gazing upon Isaiah chapter 7. Now, that prophetic tool is not in Ruth, okay? But... We're using that a prophetic tool. I'm using it as a metaphor to invite you, as we have, to look through this section of Ruth 3 and 4, which details the redemption of Ruth and Naomi, and ultimately Malon, to look through the details of this redemption, this redemptive work, upon the glorious work of Jesus Christ and the redemption we have. To do that is to be encouraged um, on all manner of levels. Now, we have biblical justification to do that, one of which is Luke 24. You're aware of these verses. Luke 24, Christ on the road to Emmaus with the disciples. Um, Remember what we read? We read that, um, or what that text says, in beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, Jesus explained the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. From that passage and many more, we have concluded that, that um, Christ's shadow goes throughout all of, of scripture. That this passage before us is a shadow um, cast by the redeeming grace of Christ. So to gaze upon this passage with the eye of faith, with the eye informed and instructed about Jesus Christ is once again to be encouraged and built up and blessed as we think about what happened to Ruth, what, uh, 3,000 plus years ago? That's going on right now in your life. Incredible. This isn't dead. This is alive, right? Living and active and sharper than any two-edged source piercing us deeply. So, th- so we're going to continue in our study of this incredible chapter, chapter two and four, or three and four, um, beginning this morning with the sixth element that we have seen that we'll learn about redemption, about Ruth's redemption. Notice with me verse 12 and 13. 
It is not at the expense of righteousness. Notice 12. This is Boaz speaking to Ruth, who, who, who was laying at his feet. And um, Boaz responded to her overture that basically that was her saying, please marry me. Um, and Boaz responded to that overture with these words. And now it is true. I am a close relative. The word literally in the Hebrew, redeemer, ga'al. I am ga'al. However, there is a ga'al, a relative, a redeemer closer than I. Remain this night when morning comes, if he will ga'al you, redeem you, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you. The focus six times in this verse, two uh, verses or verse and a, a half, Boaz references the word ga'al. What is it? Redeem. Well, to understand it, we're going to go back a little bit and realize in the Old Testament, there are primarily three Hebrew words for redemption. The first one is kafar, kafar. And it's where we get the word Yom Kippur, right? Kafar. Um, and that word is, the, is translated to redeem. It's the primary word for atonement, day of atonement. The other word is padah. Padah is another word, vertically speaking, of our relationship with God and forgiveness of sin, where God forgives us and redeems us. It's used that way in Psalm 130. And he will redeem, padah, Israel from all her iniquities. So you get the flavor. We're talking about redemption with those two words. Now, that's the vertical. That vertical uh, uh, redemption that we have by, by necessity in God's kingdom, in his covenant, demands a relationship between you and me and each other. And that relationship carries with it responsibilities. As in being a peacemaker, Matthew 5. As in saying, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The word used to describe that horizontal, redemptive responsibility that we have on account of the vertical is ga'al, this word. Okay, now we've reviewed this. Um, At this time, there were six activities, six requirements, activities associated with ga'al, redemption, the redemption of Ruth. Okay, you've got them there in your notes. To maintain the freedom of individuals with the clan by buying them back, those who had been sold into slavery. You can read through it, but it comes to a, a climax in five and six, redeeming the land and verse in number six, to redeem the name of a deceased family member by taking his wife as his own and bearing a child who as an adult would live as the heir of the deceased. And that's the word behind the levirate marriage of Deuteronomy 25, right? And that's what's going on here. Okay, so, in your minds, remember this book. Naomi comes back to the promised land, comes back to Bethlehem. After they settle in, in a day, she sends out Ruth, or she doesn't send her, Ruth goes out to glean in the fields. Um, And once they're settled, you would think by this point, because of the laws of redemption, that the community of Bethlehem would have already been talking about Malon, and who was married to Ruth, the daughter of Naomi and Elimelech. Malon, and, and the need to redeem that brother's name. You'd, you'd, you, you would think that. 
Well, whether they were or not, Naomi was, because when Ruth came in from gleaning in the fields and when she found so much favor from Boaz, do you remember what we read in Ruth 2.20? Look at your, your text there. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he, Boaz, be blessed of the Lord, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, the man is our Gaal. He's our redeemer. Um, he's the one who's, who he's, my text says, one of our closest relatives. Horrible tr- translation falling way short. He's our Gaal. He's our redeemer. He's the one who's going to redeem us from this horrible state that we're in. Okay? Um, and that is why Naomi at that moment counseled Ruth in 3, 3 through 4. Tonight, you go out there and you let him know you want to marry him. Now, she's not formally proposing, but she's letting him know, if you want to marry me, if you want to redeem me, I am all for it. So she sends Ruth out. Ruth lays at her feet. We just read about it. Lays at his feet. We just read about it. He wakes up and says, wow, amazing. And what are we reading? 310. Then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. That's an important word. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after younger men, whether poor or rich. Brothers and sisters, based upon that passage, is Boaz excited about the prospect of marrying her or disinclined? It's the former, right? Um, he wants to, I mean, he's, he's, he's uh, um, um, honored that this woman would, would want to marry him. Now, he's not married at this time, clearly, because if you're married, you wouldn't do this. Um, so he's not married. Maybe he was married. We don't know. But we know this. He's of the generation of Elimelech and Naomi. He's the age of her dad. That's why he calls her daughter, not sister. So he's an older man. He's probably in his 50s, just like Naomi. And he has this 30-year-old, 30-something woman saying, I want you to marry me. So he is incredibly honored, incredibly taken back. He wants to marry her. And that's important. Okay, I gave you a footnote in the notes. This is one of multiple quotes from my commentaries describing the, the zeal that Boaz had about marrying this woman. Okay? So this is where then this sixth point comes into to play. As much as Boaz may have wanted to marry this woman, there was a problem. Notice with me verse 12. Boaz told Ruth, and now it is true I am a close relative. However, there is a, a, a relative closer. There's a Gaal closer. See, Naomi was not informed. She'd been gone for 11 years. And she didn't know who died and, and the whole bit. And so she looks and goes, this is our Gaal to Ruth. This is it. Go lay at his feet. And, un- and shockingly, unfortunately, to Ruth perhaps and to Boaz, Boaz says, I can't do it. There's a Gaal who's closer to, to Malon than me. Okay? Now, brothers and sisters, this is the era of the judges. So think of the setting here, the life setting. This is the era of the judges. God's people, um, during this era and before and after, have done many things to manipulate to get their way. Like, for example, murder. Jezebel with Naboth's vineyard. You want the vineyard? That's easy. We'll kill Naboth. Um, Leah and Rachel. You know, I'm not going to be left alone. My oldest son is going to be left alone. You go in there and act like your sister. Let's get him drunk. Okay? Amnon and Tamar, you know, lying and using deceit to get his way. 
it, 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 this is the era of the judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It would not be shocking at all to us if Boaz knocked that guy off. If, Goaz, if, if Boaz manipulated, he did all kinds of things to get his way. Because that's what God's people were doing in this era. But what does this guy do? Verse 13. It stands out like a sore thumb. Look at 13. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. You have got to be kidding me. Good? That's amazing. If you think of the context, and Boaz, we've already seen, he wants to marry her. That's good. If he wants to redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you. And then he gives this, the quote, this, I, as the Lord lives, I, emphatic, I will, because I want to. What stands out in this section on this, on the redemption of Ruth, is that Boaz is a man of God, and he is not going to do anything but uphold righteousness. If they're to be wed, it's going to be according to the word of God. He's going to uphold righteousness. He's not going to manipulate. He's not going to do it his way. He's going to do it God's way and thereby uphold righteousness. Now, brothers and sisters, when you and I look through this event, this shadow, at that which is causing this shadow, we look through this lens at Jesus Christ and the redemption of Christ, we go, wow, guess what? Your redemption was not at the expense of righteousness. Did you know that? You may go, whatever. No, not whatever. This is huge. This is massive in, in, in the context of your salvation. Your salvation was not at the expense of righteousness. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. One of my favorite passages in all of the book of Romans is Romans 3, 21 through 25. Um, 26. Some of you may also find this to be one of your favorite. It's not the favorite, of course, they're all our favorite, but Romans 3, 21 through uh, uh, 25 is what I'm going to be, or, or 26 I'll be focusing on. But would you notice here, Paul is addressing a problem. Having shared the, the gospel in, in terms of what he was teaching about the Jews and Gentiles, all are condemned, all stand uh, condemned before God. He brings us now to this climactic point where he says in verse 25b, in the forbearance of God, Romans 3.25b, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. You go, amen. Brothers and sisters, as wonderful as that passage is, and as wonderful as that statement is, it creates an eternal problem. A massive problem. God passed over sin. And you know why we don't see the problem? Because we have a wrong view of forgiveness. We think forgiveness is simply overlooking, right? Someone does something bad, you say, oh, it's no big deal. I'll overlook it. That's what we think of forgiveness. And so we think God, when he forgives us of our sin, he looks at us in our sinfulness and says, I'll overlook it. But brothers and sisters, he could just as well change his mind and not overlook it later. If you still have sin in your life, if you're still guilty of sin before God, and he simply overlooks it, well, that may be glorious for the time he's overlooking it, and that may be before eternity. Well, that may be glorious. What about justice? Ezekiel chapter 18, the person who sins will die. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. 
If God simply overlooks your sin, if that's what he's done in your forgiveness, then while he may be a loving and kind and gracious and wonderful being, he's not just. And if he's not just, he's a demon. And if he's he's a demon, he could just as well be the devil. An unjust God is no God at all. An unjust God is a scary individual. Okay, so Paul says, man, he overlooked sins previously uh, committed, but that creates this massive problem, which the cross solves. Notice with me Romans 3.25, now the beginning again. Speaking of Christ's cross, on the cross, Christ dis- God displayed publicly, or Christ was displayed publicly. Now, that's in contrast to the sacrificial system, which was all private. Christ was before everyone could see. He was displayed publicly as a wrath-removing sacrifice, a propitiation, which means satisfying justice. The wage of sin is death. What did Jesus Christ do? He gave his life to pay for your death. God doesn't overlook sin, brothers and sisters. He doesn't. He doesn't say, oh, we'll just downplay the fact that you sinned. God paid the payment due you because of your sin, my sin. He put that payment on Jesus Christ. Or better yet, Jesus Christ said, give it to me, God, on the cross. God displayed Christ to the entire world as the object of God's just wrath. And then he goes on. In his blood, through his death, this was to demonstrate... So the whole world could see God's righteousness. So the cross of Christ not only forgave us our sin, but it also demonstrates something about God. He's righteous. How? Because in the, this is why. In the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously uh, committed. Do you see it? People could say, oh, so God's not just. He's a loving God, but not a just God. And Paul's saying, no, no. The, the cross demonstrates That God is both a loving God, and that he passes over sins, he forgives them, by damning another individual in your place, Jesus Christ. And then we read, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be both just, declared to be God is just. How do you know that? The cross. And the justifier, the grace giver. The one who forgives sin. How do you know that? The cross. God put at the cross. At the cross, God did two things masterfully. He both demonstrated to the world his grace and his justice in one act. Do you understand, brothers and sisters? So many of us, now I think you know academically that, oh no, justification is an act of God's forgiveness, right? You know that academically. But the way we practically live, we practically live as if God overlooks our sin. He doesn't. And by overlook, I don't mean in the biblical sense. I mean in the human sense. He just downplays it. It's not a big deal. I'll just ignore all those sins. That's how we view God. And so when we have a bad sin week, we go, I think God has to get sick of ignoring my sins. He has to be fed up by now. And therefore, God must at this point be angry with me. He must be dour with me. There must be this distance in my walk. Brothers and sisters, all of that is fallacious. When you understand that at the cross of Jesus Christ, God's wrath was removed. All of it. There is therefore now no 
condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. Do you see what, the, what our redemption is? God, he didn't ignore justice. He upheld it and in upholding it, what a blessing for you and me. Do you understand what this means practically in our walks with Jesus Christ? No matter how bad you may sin as a Christian, that sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ. It cannot condemn us. God cannot disown us. He cannot relegate us to a second level. He cannot disdain us. Because of that crosswork, Romans 3, 25 through 26, God is ever and always well pleased with you even when you're sinning. That's the gospel. Amazing. So we look at Boaz and we go, this, this passion, this, at a time where no one had this, very few had this passion, this passion to uphold righteousness. Tell you what, you look through that at Christ, you go, wow, what an encouragement for you and I. Notice thirdly, or seventhly, it's unto honor and not dishonor. Verse 13. After speaking to Ruth about his commitment to redeem her, Boaz told her, lie down now until morning. So she lay down at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. So it was awfully dark. And he, Boaz, said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He announced that to Ruth and to all of his servants. Let it not be known that Ruth came to the threshing floor. So, Ruth spent the night. After the interchange in the middle of the night, ah, who's at my feet? And remember, in the Hebrew, he's shocked. He literally is scared, frightened. Ah, who's at my, my feet? You know, I'm your servant, da-da-da. So then she stays there, spends the night. And then, brothers and sisters, had Don awoken... And everyone else on that reaping time looked and saw Ruth rise from Boaz's bed. You know what? No one would think a thing bad about Boaz. But they would have thought horrible things about Ruth. Double standard? Yes. A biblical standard? No. Double standard culturally? Yes. Think with me. God originally ordained it to be one man, woman, one woman forever, right? Genesis. Yet man in his sinfulness rebelled against God's standard and dove in the ancient world into uh, polygamy. So you got patriarchs visiting prostitutes, Judah, Tamar. You've got Abraham uh, not having a kid. His wife said, hey, sleep with my handmaid. You've got David, multiple wives, Solomon, multiple wives. I mean, brothers and sisters, the ancient world was, was, was saturated with this. Okay, now you go, why would God allow that? Well, brothers and sisters, just like wise parenting, I, you don't take a, a, a six-month-old baby and discipline it or try to change it from going to the bathroom in his pants, holding his garments, spitting up his food all over you, crying when they want to eat. You don't, you don't go, man, that child needs discipline. You don't do that. But what if you got a 14-year-old son who soils his pants who, um, when he has to throw up, doesn't try to go to the bathroom, goes, hey, Dad, yeah, blah, right? I mean, <laughs> right? What if that 14-year-old son, when he, when he came in hungry, like 14 years are famished, I'm hungry, he comes in and he, and he falls on the floor, does a backflop, and goes, blah, and starts screaming. What would you say to him? You'd say, oh, it, Junior, isn't Junior cute? Yes, he, he has poopy pants, you know? He has poopy pants. He's he a good little kid. 
No, you're going to say, we got to fix this. Brothers and sisters, I'm talking about something we do in parenting. It's called condescending grace. Calvin, uh, uh, fra- uh, uh, what's the word? Um, made this phrase up. Um, when it came to God, this is known as the doctrine of God's condescending grace. It comes from Matthew chapter 10. That's what God does, or Mark 10. That's what God does with his people in the Old Testament. They're children. You can't expect them to, to act and function as adults. So Mac, Mark chapter 10, some Pharisees came up to Jesus, tested him, began to question whether it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And Jesus answered and said, and what did Moses command you? And he said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Deuteronomy 24, by the way. So Genesis 1, one man, one woman. Deuteronomy 24 comes and Moses says, you can divorce your wife. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. In other words, you couldn't handle that commandment, Genesis. Because you couldn't handle it, God condescended, John Calvin. His condescending grace took them where they were. Now, he didn't overlook that sin. Jesus died for those sins. But he didn't hold them up to a standard they couldn't handle. Any more than you're going to hold up a 14-year-old boy or girl to a standard that you hope that they'll be at religiously or spiritually when they're 26. Right? You, you, you accept them where they are. Well, that's what God did in the Old Covenant. And the result was, when we come to the time of Judges, polygamy was everywhere. Laying with prostitutes was no big deal. If Boaz had been discovered having spent the night that night with a Moabite prostitute named Ruth, no one would have batted an eye. They would have thought, whatever. I'm sure there were other men in the field that evening. But if Ruth had been seen as a single woman rising from the bed of another man, she would have been viewed as a prostitute, a hussy, name it. She would have been viewed as an immoral wretch that needed to be rejected. If word got out that Ruth spent the night, even though it was pure, if word got out from his servants, yeah, Ruth spent the night last night in our master's bed, She would not have been redeemed, not by Boaz, not by the closer redeemer. So what does Boaz do here? In the middle of the night or the middle of of the morning, it's dark. He gets his entire camp up and says, no one will speak about this. He's just like Joseph, right, with Mary. He was a righteous man, not seeking to have her be dishonored. He preserved her honor and said, no one speak about this. Ruth, go home. Brothers and sisters, you look through this redeeming Uh, um, um, element of Boaz and Ruth upon the redemption we have in Christ. And once again, we're floored. Do you know that your salvation was unto honor? Let me read a verse. 2 Timothy 2.20, Timothy's struggling with people in the church, eating them up. And God says, the reason why, or Paul says, the reason why is because they're not saved. Those people biting you, they're not saved. Listen to what he says. Now in a large house, speaking of the church, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware. Some to honor, some to dishonor. He's saying, in a house, we've got, we got the daily wear and we got the, the china. In the church of God, you've got people who aren't saved. That's the wood and vessels. But the other ones, the china, the ones claimed by God, they're to honor. Do you understand? God saved you to honor you. Or better yet, another way of saying it is this. God's salvation includes Honoring you and me. Think about that with me. Again, I hope that doesn't go over your head. It's like, whatever. Brother and sister, this is huge. 
The world's going to dishonor us all the time. They're going to beat us up. But God's plan for us is honor. Listen to um, 1 Peter. You know it. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. We read uh, uh, Peter speaking of the second coming of Jesus Christ. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. That the proof of your faith be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found. Your faith may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you've got a quote there from uh, um, Wayne Gruden. Read it, please. I'm not going to spend the time. You've got verses that back what he's saying up. Romans 2.29, Matthew 25.21. Where the Bible is very clear in the, in the eternal state, God is going to honor us. Praise, glory, and honor in 1 Peter 1 is not talking about us giving praise, glory, and honor to God. That's the praise, glory, and honor that God gives to us. It's just as Paul said it in Ephesians. Talking about marriage. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, honors it. Just as Christ also does the church. Brothers and sisters, when you think of the redemption of Boaz, you think of this incredible concern for her honor. When you think of the redemption you have in Christ, you need to think of this incredible concern that God has, and that's honor. Now you go, why is that so important? That's so important because that brings us from just merely getting by. Merely, I, I'm saved, but I'm a wretched individual. I do all these sins, and God, you know, I'm the, I'm the Christian who God really doesn't like. He saved me, he puts up with me. You know, he saved me, but he, he, he looks back and goes, you know, I sort of regret that I made him king. I regret that I saved this guy. Many of us have that in our minds. That God has to be displeased with me. He has to be going, you know what, I love all those people, but you, you are one person that just, at times, I just want to say, get out of my presence. This word honor, you know what that word means? That's a word, it's a combination of love Mixed with praise, mixed with goodness, mixed with kindness. It's one of those words again. A con- I call those uh, convergent words. It's the convergent of three or four different facets of God all on you. God's kindness, his goodness, his love, and his honor, his, ch- his, uh, his um, uh, valuing converge on you. The next time you think that you're not important to God, brothers and sisters, remember this. You are so important to him. Scott read it this morning as the assurance of forgiveness, Romans 5. You are so important to him, he was willing to kill his son. Not willing. He killed his son for you. And you think that God, after doing that, is going to look upon you with disdain? You'll never be cursed by God. Why? Fill in the blank. Because Christ was cursed in your place. Incredible. Now, brothers and sisters, we're out of time. Uh, We'll pick this up next week in verse 15. But take these principles that we see from Ruth. Take them to heart, brothers and sisters. You stand before God today on a righteous platform of forgiveness. You have no sin. In the minute or two, I'm going to take to elaborate that. Would you believe if I told you this day, I have never sinned? 
Would you believe me? Would you believe me if I told you I have never lied? I've never been cross. I've never spoken rashly. I've never wasted time. I've never overindulged. I have never sinned. That was the statement our professor made when he, on the day in systematics, he was teaching on justification. And he began the class that way, and we're smiling. I'm going, all right, what's the, the hitch here? Because I know, Dr. Raymond, you're a wretched sinner, right? But he said, it's true. I'm not lying to you. I'm not playing games. I have never sinned according to the, uh, according to the log of God when it comes to me, the sinner. That's what justification is. Not guilty. A forensic declaration. You're without sin. And that upholds righteousness. Because Christ died in our place. Brother and sister, that's you. And not only that, but you are the object of honor. God cherishes you. Think about that. God cherishes you. He cares about you. Psalm 57, he stores your tears, every tear you ever weep, in a bottle. That's how important your sorrow is to God. He doesn't miss a thing. That's the idea behind honor. That's behind the idea behind cherish. It's this jealousy which says, you're mine and no one, no one is going to ultimately mistreat you. Yeah, there may be some temporal struggles. But in the end, brothers and sisters, no one is going to mistreat us. What a God we serve. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing to gaze through this anecdotal passage describing what you did in the life of redeemed people over 3,000 years ago. And yet to study this passage and see that it has a freshness to it, um, a delight, a fresh, a, a, a relevancy, which, which hits us right where we live. Lord, in so many ways, we are Ruth. We are the grateful recipients of your forgiveness of sin by which you condemned Jesus Christ. We are the glorious recipients of your divine love that continues to love and thus results in cherishing. You told your people, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you or sons of Israel are not consumed. Thank you, God, that you do not change. Thank you, God, that we are your beloved children whom you chose over Christ as you allowed him and sent him to the cross that we might live. God, thank you. Hear our praise this morning. I pray for the brethren listening to this passage that God, you would penetrate deep in their hearts and you would shake that cold heart. That, Lord, you would, you would crack the, those um, uh, convictions that have arisen over their fallen mindset that God could never love me when I've done these things. Crack that, Lord. Shatter it. Break our wayward will. Refashion our brains and our minds according to your word that we would leave here impassioned for Jesus Christ because of your passion for us, Jesus. 
longing to serve you because of your grace given to us at the cross. God, we pray, so drive us this day. We turn now to the table, O Lord, and pray that you'd bless this time as well, that we would see in this meal the message this morning of forgiveness, of justice rendered, of forgiveness granted, of love extended, of cherishing and caring. Lord, bless this time to our spiritual nourishment and growth and grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's indeed.